Well, good morning, church. To you are here, and those who are streaming from wherever you are, we want to welcome you, and, and uh, let's just be thankful. How about that brass, huh? Wow. Can we do that every week, Phil? And uh, how about Tristel? Standing here, you know, wow, welcome. Thank you, Tristel. And how about the fact that we're not talking about Philadelphia this week? Amen? Woo! Thank the Lord for good timing. Let's just do a little crash review uh, once again on week five of the first four churches in our Refresh series. Very quick review, just as a reminder, and if you are new We're in a series of the seven churches in Revelation, so that began with the church at Ephesus, which uh, has been known as the loveless church, instructed to repent, to reverse their direction in the way they were living their life, to love Jesus and to love others as they did at first when they first came to Christ. The second church was the church at Smyrna, the persecuted church, instructed to maintain their faithfulness until death. Then there was Pergamum, the compromising church, instructed to repent, to turn around and defy the false teaching that had led them astray to following after false gods and justifying sexual immorality. Last week we talked about Thyatira, the corrupt church who lived in the same rebellion that old Queen Jezebel caused in the Old Testament of mixing gods and idols in with the worship of God. An idol being anything in our lives which replaces our devotion from the one true God of creation who we know freely offers the world and offers to you today the only solution to restoring a deeply fallen race or a deeply fallen life. And how dare I suggest today that this practice of making and worshiping idols would still exist today. And maybe there would be a tiny glimpse of that to be seen in the greater Kansas City area, Missouri and Sedgwick County, South Central Kansas, over the next few hours. God help us. God help this preacher. And so now to his beloved, the fifth church in Sardis, and be reminded that these letters are love letters given to John, written by John, by a broken-hearted Savior, a Savior who even to this very day longs for churches everywhere, including each and every one of us who are alive and breathing today, to come to Him in faith, believing, and in surrender in your day-to-day life in your workplaces, in your families, in your communities, and in the relationships that we all treasure. He calls us always to do that. So as is our custom at Central Community, and out of respect for what the ancients used to call the Holy Writ of Scripture, 
the unquestionable, unchanging authority of God's Word, would you stand again this morning out of respect for His Word as we read now from the third chapter of Revelation, beginning with verse 1, and I'm going to read it for you this morning. To the angel of the church in Sardis, these are the words of Him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He says, I know your deeds that you have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, be watchful, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard, obey it and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis, a few people who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot his name from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels." He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us as we have worshipped and as we have sung. Fall fresh on us that we might not only see truth, but that we would surrender to living out the truth that we would be declared alive. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. The city of Sardis overlooked the intersection of five different roads from what historians describe as strategically located at the foot of Mount Timalis or a part of the Bazdag mountain range. Sardis was located where today there is a city called Sart. And there still remains not only some of the remains of Sardis, but some very steep slopes and a narrow ridge formation on the top of this mountain where Sardis was located. The people of Sardis believed back then that its city was militarily attack-free. A historical search lists multiple, uh, multiple levels of attacks, including an earthquake in 17 AD, which apparently leveled the city. By the way, Sardis would have been about 600 miles west of our most recent horrific earthquake in Turkey. Much to everyone's surprise, Sardis was attacked and it was defeated at least two major times in its history, once in 546 or 7 BC and then again by Alexander the Great around 330 to 334 BC, both times the city taken by surprise attack from enemies who quickly and quietly scaled up her steep slopes and her fortress walls. So it is no wonder that John writes in the second verse, wake up to the people who had historically been accustomed in their history to unannounced and unpleasant visitors who came and conquered the city. I want you to make a mental note of that as we walk through this fifth city today. It figures greatly into John's writing and the way Jesus led him to write in this particular letter. 
Sardis was also known for its great wealth due to its location over these five intersecting highways, making Sardis a booming trade center. Its greatest king was a man named Croesus or Croesus, and under the very wealthy king Croesus, Sardis not only reached its height and its power and its splendor, but it also, under his leadership, fell to disaster. Most everyone knows what generally happens to a nation or to a people who possess far more things than anyone needs. The same happened with Sardis. And upon an ancient visit to Sardis by a man named Salome, known as the wisest of Greeks, he was shown the wealth, the splendor, and the luxury of Sardis, but he also saw this blind confidence of King Croesus and his people, along with what he described as a softness, a flabbiness in their lifestyle. Salon also saw inevitable degeneration. In his arrogance, Croesus was attacked by the wrong opponent, a man named King Cyrus II of Persia in 546 BC. And this was the downfall of Sardis, thinking itself too strong and too invincible to ever need to post watchmen for protection. Sardis fell in 14 days. God's word reminds us, pride cometh before a fall. After this destruction, Sardis rebuilt itself, but it had also then become known as the degenerate city. And so it was here in Sardis that the Christian church had along with its city also become degenerate. Robert Mounts, who did a study on Revelation, a commentary, and looked particularly at this city of Sardis, wrote this way, and I want to quote him, the church really had no major problems with heresy or outside opposition as we studied in the first four churches, especially last week with Thyatira, when we looked at that, and the week before at Pergamum. That doesn't mean there was not ample worship of false gods along with the worship of Caesar. The problem was that the Sardis believers had so completely come to terms with its pagan environment around it that although it retained this outward appearance of life, it was spiritually dead. You see, while Jesus says exclusively in Scripture, I am the way, the truth, and the life, these Christians were living as if Jesus was one of the ways, one of many truths, and one of many lives that could find their way to God. One historian wrote this, the city got along just fine with the Christians. Note how John writes in verse 1. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Like the fig tree in Matthew's gospel, it had lots of outer leaves but no inner fruit. Something was wrong on the inside. 
The church in Sardis had become, as one writer put it, the perfect model of inoffensive Christianity. They were busy, but they were not alive, and they were not watchful. Although not all the Christians there had joined this culture of behavior, the church as a whole had become Christian in name only. One writer illustrated it like this. When you see the Big Dipper up in the sky, you're looking at light that began its journey earthward over a century ago. It is possible that some of those stars no longer exist. A star might be dead while the light we see makes it look alive. This had become the church in Sardis. Quite simply, Sardis's Christianity had become sin-sick. Oftentimes we find in the New Testament writing a strong correlation between sin and death. James 1, we read this classic line, and sin, when it is full-grown, gives birth to death. Now that's not necessarily a terminal death of one's body, but the death of one's spirit, the death of one's mind, one's moral compass, one's conscience, one's convictions. And as one writer put it, their faith had become merely mechanical. Paul speaks of the new Christians in Romans' letter as those who are alive from the dead. In his Ephesian letter, Paul writes and refers to Christians in their lifestyle prior to trusting Jesus for salvation. Listen to how he reads in Ephesians 2, beginning with verse 1. He's writing to the church. He's writing to believers, but he says it this way. As for you, Christians, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The Sardis believers had slipped back into an old spiritually dead way of life. This fifth, this fifth city, John writes to the Christians because of their great complacency as being dead, lifeless, having no longer strong convictions and a dulled or a seared conscience. So Jesus does not mince words. I know your deeds. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. As sad as that is, a reputation can carry one along for some time down the road. And as false as it may become, a people can be deceived into thinking that such a reputation is still accurate when indeed the truth of it no longer remains like that burnt out star. And this was part of the deception of this church in Sardis. John writes these words, wake up, be watchful. The word there in verse 2 is actually a word that sounds like Gregorio, meaning to watch, to keep Awake, strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have found your deeds incomplete or unfinished in the sight of my God. Return to the things you did at first. 
That's like Ephesus. Convictions you would have died for, but have not faded. Now, now they have faded in your preference to just get along with everybody. Can you imagine if there were a day when you and I might stand before the Lord? When he says to us, I have found your works incomplete or unfinished. Well, we listen to that and say, let's just move along from that, Pastor. That's, that's not in my theology. Here's the solution. Verse 3, remember, therefore, what you have received and heard, hold it fast, obey it, and repent. Turn around. Make a choice today. Come back to me in faith and in practice. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And here again is Sardis's history coming in specifically to the way John's writing. You will not know at what time I come to you. It had already happened in this history of Sardis more than once. John writes for Jesus in the language that the Sardis people should have been well attuned. It was for that very reason of not watching that allowed her enemies to literally attack and destroy their city more than once. We must be constantly on the watch, not only for the imminent return of Christ, but also for present attacks of the enemy. Four slides, four verses among many. 1 Peter 5.8, your enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for someone like a lion to devour. Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray, Jesus says to his disciples in the garden, that you will not fall into temptation. Watch for temptation. Temptation awaits our unguarded moments in life. Matthew 24, 42, therefore, Jesus says, keep watch because you do not know what day your Lord will come. We ought to be watching for his coming, but we ought to also be living as if every day was our last before he does come. What might he find you doing? Good question. And then Acts chapter 20, verse 29. Listen, listen to how Paul writes. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and they will distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Watch for false teachers. Watch for false teaching. Failing to watch can lead to disaster the same as it was for Sardis. Complacency, immorality, materialism, no convictions equals spiritual chameleons. Spiritual chameleons. Changing color as the need to demands. 
Think about that for a moment. They'd fallen asleep. This was the church at Sardis. And this church, seemingly more than the others so far in our study, seems to get a much stricter warning, as if far more of them are involved in these problems. And it appears that way. He says, you have a few people in your church who have not soiled their clothes. That's not a very good report. They looked alive on the outside. They were still regularly attending the fellowship meetings. It was their routine. But where their faith really mattered, they were asleep. Now, I'm I'm wondering, how would this look practically? They would be constantly complaining if things didn't go their way. Their gatherings would eventually be full of gossip and criticism instead of praise and thankful hearts for what God had done for them. They would seldom encourage one another any longer in the faith and in each other's lives. They would rarely stand up in the public arena and fight for justice in the name of Christ. They would get tired of taking care of the widows and the orphans. You see, they had so blended in with the world around them that it could be said that the salt of the earth, the church of Christ, had become tasteless. Well, here's the warning and the instruction to remember what you've received and heard, to obey it, hold it fast, and repent. Turn around. Make some new choices. This is the general command throughout all seven of these letters. Finally, John writes about those who are victorious, who overcome, who have held fast, and he gives a great promise from the Lord, those who have not soiled their clothes, as he writes, they will walk with me dressed in white, for they are worthy. They're not perfect by any means, but they know they are forgiven, and they also live faithful lives. You see, in Sardis, there were still some who trusted in the blood of Jesus, the blood of the Lamb. And their lives gave a testimony of following faithfully. Watching for the enemy, guarding their hearts, serving Jesus and making Him known to the world around them. There were still a few of those. You have a few who have not soiled their clothes. And then there's the prize. Listen to the prize. And, you know, I've, I've thought about this, and, and I cannot possibly fathom how this scene might look. I have to remind myself that in God's economy, there is no timeline. There's no beginning and no ending, so that helps. And I, Jesus, I, Jesus, will acknowledge his or her name before my Father and His angels. 
My friends, if there could possibly be a grander moment in all of existence for any one of us, I can't fathom what it would be. Since 776 B.C., there have been with interruptions in history what we know as the games of the Olympiad. An Olympiad actually became a time measurement for a period of four years. I never knew that. Through our lifetime, we have all watched it every two years, the summer and the winter. Men and women the world over consumed and defined by their sport to be able to stand on that top block during the games of one of the Olympics to hear his or her own national song be played before the world and to receive that amazing gold medal placed around the neck as the world declares him or her a champion Olympian. And many of us watch that with tears, do we not? But another day is coming when another block will be placed before the ruler of the kings of the earth, the Alpha and the Omega, the Almighty, the beginning and the end, and every soul who has trusted Jesus for their salvation and has faithfully followed through will step up to that top block, and Jesus will introduce you by name. You will be given a new name, one letter says. The crown of life, another letter says. You'll eat from the tree of life. You won't be hurt by the second death. And you'll share in the authority over the nations. And He will introduce you to His Father as another overcomer. Dressed in white and walking with Christ. And then verse 5 tells us that his name will never be blotted out from the book of life. Never. Today you may be wondering that as John is writing about this book of life, does he mean that some may have their names removed? Maybe everyone begins with their name in the book and then they're removed based upon their rejection of Christ. Different things have been written. But let me say that if such a question disturbs you and you have to know what exactly does that mean for me, then I would suggest that you just simply do some of your own soul searching. And as instructed, repent, turn around, and today receive Him as your Savior and begin to walk with Jesus. And if that question about the book of life bothers you and it, it prods you to become more faithful to Jesus, then it's not worth answering. Just leave it alone and follow him. Because isn't that more important than having it all figured out? The question is today, are you trusting in the blood of the Lamb for your salvation, and does your life give testimony to following Jesus? 
as Phil continues to play, I want you to bow with me in prayer just for a moment. Just bow your heads. If this is important to you this morning and you're just not sure about the name and the book and where you stand, you can make this simple prayer that I'm going to pray your prayer. It's not magical. It's just a prayer. It's just an invitation to your Creator. Make this your prayer. Lord Jesus, I know I'm lost. And my life desperately needs forgiveness. Today, I place my faith in what you did on the cross to pay for my sins so I can be free and clean before you. Thank you for making me a new person and for giving me the gift of eternal life. And secondly, if that is your prayer today, tell someone you know who loves Jesus so they can help you begin this new life. If you're here today and you've prayed that prayer today, visit the starting point. It's a little area to the left of the foyer as you leave and someone will be there to give you a little packet, just a little simple packet to help you begin following Jesus. If you'll do those things, may God be praised.